and welcome to the seventh episode of Go to Sleep. So uh, apparently, according to my fiance, last episode, I I try to talk on this show in sort of a soothing-ish manner, sort of a nighttime voice, but apparently I got a little too nighttime last episode, and it was a little uh, ridiculous, is what the feedback I got, because, you know, she is, of course, my primary uh, listener, and uh, and everything I do on the show is basically intended to help her fall asleep, so um, I'm going to try to be a little less... Uh, smooth this time around and uh, we'll see we'll see how that goes Uh, this is going to be the last episode of this show for uh 2017 right i mean we're we're coming in on the end of it it's almost um it's almost new year's i mean technically i guess i could do one more episode next weekend but i don't intend to we'll see i mean you never know but um but i think this is going to be it for the year and uh, and with that in mind, I thought I would um, take a quick look back at uh, at 2017 and kind of um, you know try to sum up the year for myself. You know, human beings we really like these arbitrary uh, collections of time, right? Decades, years, weeks, whatever. We like to divide things into more comprehensible and uh, and manageable units, and and I'm definitely like that. And so. Even though we know that you know things don't take an exact amount of time ever, right? Some things, uh, you know, whatever decade we talk about, probably what we're talking about didn't exactly happen in that decade. Maybe it started in a part of it, ended in another decade, all that kind of stuff. So, um, similarly, you know, twenty seventeen is kind of an arbitrary um, organization of time. But for me this year, it kind of was a very specific amount of time because. It was very early in the year that I uh, left my longtime job, and um, for most of the year, I was traveling. Uh, and of course, you know, for me, the big events were leaving the job, traveling, and getting engaged. Um, and everything else is is you know interesting to me, but on a personal level, those were the things that really that really stand out. Of course, um, on a more global level, of course, 2017 has been a really difficult year. You know, I think a lot of people thought 2016 was was not a great year, but that was really very, I don't want to say superficial, but in retrospect, you know, a lot of that was like celebrities that we lost or, or, you know, the stress of the election and Whatever else, whatever was causing you stress in 2016, it really feels like 2017 <laughs> did not did not get much better. So um, I hope everyone out there has had a great year. Uh, I I've had a a great year mixed with a terrible year. Right? I wouldn't want, I, and I don't think that equals like a mediocre year. I think that's just the reality. On a personal level, I've had a really good year. On a on a sort of community global level, I've had a pretty bad year. So it's interesting. You know, I think for me, the thing that that ends up being most important is to try to figure out um, how to take care of myself. And I think for a lot of people that I know, this was a wake up call year where we really had to uh, embrace personal health uh, in and realize some, you know, pretty toxic things in our lives or whatever was, was, you know, cause I, I think that when, when life is, is stressful 
you you have less space for for dumb other things, right? When everything is good, you can put up with a lot of a lot of stupid stuff. But I think when things get harder, then you find yourself having less energy for dumb things. So for me, that means primarily that I've taken a huge break this year from uh, services like Facebook and Twitter, you know, um, because I found that they were providing far less value than they used to for me, and that the trade-off of value to stress was was just not not in an acceptable place. So that's just, I mean, that's a pretty superficial example, but it's just, you know, the kind of thing I'm talking about, you know, just kind of evaluating. And I've had a lot of, you know, one of the nice things about sort of taking a break from my career uh, is that I I had some time to, to really kind of contemplate this stuff. And I think that, you know, obviously it was a crazy luxury that I got to do that, but it was very helpful for me. And then, of course, all the traveling was amazing, and getting engaged was amazing, and now I'm planning the wedding. Uh, since the last time I spoke to you all, we uh, we booked a couple more things. We've got, I don't ever remember what when things happen, but now we've got, um, probably have our day of planner, which is something I didn't know existed until I started planning my wedding, but we probably figured out who that is. We probably figured out who our DJ is. We um, definitely have, you know, confirmation on a lot of stuff, and uh, really it's just the officiant that is the last remaining big unknown. After that, there's a million small things to do, but I think all the small things are, are pretty achievable, you know. The the last sort of, like, we need to lock this down is, is the officiant, um, and hopefully we'll take care of that really soon. Um, other than that, you know, the year's winding down. Not really doing that much. Uh, just kind of starting to think about, you know, next year. Um, you know, trying to figure out what my goals are. Trying to get prepared to achieve those goals. Um, looking for a job, which is, you know, always fun. Uh, and uh, yesterday we, we rearranged our living room. Um, you know, we live in an older house and um, it's not really designed for modern living. And um, the room where that's most apparent for us is the living room because, like most people, we have a television. And um, but we also don't want our whole life to be about the television. But we also don't want to hide the television, and we want to be able to see it and that kind of stuff. And we have a very large sectional couch that I inherited from my parents, and uh, and just trying to figure out a way for all of those things to be in the room in any kind of sensible manner uh, has been very challenging. And we had a solution that we were okay with but it wasn't ideal so then last night we we got the very good idea to to try to find a better solution and and rather than figure that out before we started moving furniture we just started moving furniture so it was hours of just picking up giant couch pieces and moving them and and being frustrated that they didn't make any sense but in the end I think we found a nice solution, at least as nice, I think nicer than the one we started with, which is good, um, but also just kind of nice in and of itself. So we'll probably live with this for, for quite a while. And maybe we might change it a little bit, you know, refine it. But um, And for the for the nerd, nerdier folks out there, one of my goals in trying to move everything was that I have, um, I have a really nice stereo hooked up to my record player. And I have a TV hooked up to a sound bar. And that seems really silly to me. I'd really rather have the TV hooked up to the stereo, have the record player and the TV kind of hooked up to the same stereo. But right now, the TV and the sound bar are in the living room and the stereo and the record player and stuff are in the dining room. 
And I was really hoping that any solution we came up with could unify that, but it absolutely didn't. So um, we either have to find a different solution or I have to continue with my current situation, which is not really so bad of having the, the two stereos separate from each other. Uh, but it is kind of funny that the whole thing for me was motivated by this one thing. And then that, of course, didn't didn't actually have a solution, at least not yet. So we'll see. Anyway, that's, a, I suppose, about it for me. Uh, I'm recording this on uh, on the 24th, which is, um, you know, my fiance is from Germany, and that's when they celebrate their, what they call Weihnacht. Um, and uh, so we're, we're heading over to her sister's house in a little bit for that. So we're just kind of, you know, I'm just smelling the pies that are being baked and things like that. It's, it's, it's nice. It's a nice vibe. So, um, yeah. So I, I hope everyone out there is um, having a great uh, end of the year. Um, I hope you had a great holiday of whatever holiday you celebrate or a great no holiday if you don't celebrate any holiday. Um, or in, if in my case you celebrate multiple holidays because you're in a mixed family, then I, I hope that all the holidays went well and, um, and that we all have a good and safe uh, New Year's and, uh, and that 2018 brings uh, more joy to everyone than 2017 did, even if 2017 was really good for you. I hope 2018 is even better. So uh, today I will be reading from The Problems of Philosophy by Bertrand Russell. And this is from chapter six on our knowledge of general principles. We saw in the preceding chapter that the principle of induction, while necessary to the validity of all arguments based on experience, is itself not capable of being proved by experience, and yet is unhesitatingly believed by everyone, at least in all its concrete applications. In these characteristics, the principle of induction does not stand alone. There are a number of other principles which cannot be proved or disproved by experience, but are used in arguments which start from what is experienced. Some of these principles have an even greater evidence than the principle of induction, and the knowledge of them has the same degree of certainty as the knowledge of the existence of sense data. They constitute the means of drawing inferences from what is given in sensation, and if what we infer is to be true, it is just as necessary that our principles of inference should be as true as it is that our data should be true. The principles of inference are apt to be overlooked because of their very obviousness, the assumption involved is assented to without our realizing that it is an assumption, but it is very important to realize the use of principles of inference, if a correct theory of knowledge is to be obtained, for our knowledge of them raises interesting and difficult questions. In all our knowledge of general principles, what actually happens is that first of all we realize some particular application of the principle, and then we realize that the particularity is irrelevant and that there is a generality which may equally truly be affirmed. This is, of course, familiar in such matters as teaching arithmetic. Two and two or four is first learned in the case of some particular pair of couples, and then in some other particular case, and so on, until at last it becomes possible to see that it is true of any pair of couples. The same thing happens with logical principles. Suppose two men are discussing what day of the month it is. One of them says, at least you will admit that if yesterday was the 15th, today must be the 16th. Yes, says the other, I admit that. And you know, the first continues, that yesterday was the 15th, because you dined with Jones, and your diary will tell you that it was on the 15th. Yes, says the second, therefore today is the 16th. Now such an argument is not hard to follow, and if it is granted that its premises are true in fact, 
no one will deny that the conclusion must also be true. But it depends for its truth upon an instance of a general logical principle. The logical principle is as follows. Suppose it known that if this is true, then that is true. Suppose it also known that this is true, then it follows that that is true. When it is the case that if this is true, that is true, we shall say that this implies that, and what that follows from this. Thus our principle states that if this implies that, and this is true, then that is true. In other words, anything implied by a true proposition is true, or whatever follows from a true proposition is true. This principle is really involved. At least concrete instances of it are involved in all demonstrations. Whenever one thing which we believe is used to prove something else, which we consequently believe, this principle is relevant. If anyone asks, why should I accept the results of valid arguments based on true premises, we can only answer by appealing to our principle. In fact, the truth of the principle is impossible to doubt, and its obviousness is so great that at first sight it seems almost trivial. Such principles, however, are not trivial to the philosopher, for they show that we may have indubitable knowledge which is in no way derived from objects of sense. The above principle is merely one of a certain number of self-evident logical principles. Some at least of these principles must be granted before any argument or proof becomes possible. When some of them have been granted, others can be proved, though these others, so long as they are simple, are just as obvious as the principles taken for granted. For no very good reason, three of these principles have been singled out by tradition under the name of laws of thought. They are as follows. The law of identity, whatever is, is. The law of contradiction, nothing can both be and not be. The law of excluded middle, everything must either be or not be. These three laws are samples of self-evident logical principles, but are not really more fundamental or more self-evident than various other similar principles. For instance, the one we considered just now, which states that what follows from a true premises is true, the name laws of thought is also misleading. For what is important is not the fact that we think in accordance with these laws, but the fact that things behave in accordance with them. In other words, the fact that when we think in accordance with them we think truly. But this is a large question to which we must return at a later stage. In addition to the logical principles which enable us to prove from a given premise that something is certainly true, there are other logical principles which enable us to prove from a given premise that there is a greater or less probability that something is true. An example of such principles, perhaps the most important example, is the inductive principle, which we considered in the preceding chapter. One of the great historic controversies in philosophy is the controversy between the two schools called respectively empiricists and rationalists. The empiricists, who are best represented by the British philosophers Locke, Berkeley, and Hume, maintain that all our knowledge is derived from experience. The rationalists, who are represented by the continental philosophers of the 17th century, especially Descartes and Leibniz, maintain that in addition to what we know by experience, there are certain innate ideas and innate principles which we know independently of experience. It has now become possible to decide with some confidence as to the truth or falsehood of these opposing schools. It must be admitted, for the reasons already stated, that logical principles are known to us and cannot be themselves proved by experience, since all proof presupposes them. In this, therefore, which was the most important point of the controversy, the rationalists are in the right. On the other hand, even that part of our knowledge which is logically independent of experience 
in the sense that experience cannot prove it, is yet elicited and caused by experience. It is on occasion of particular experiences that we become aware of the general laws which their connections exemplify. It would certainly be absurd to suppose that there are innate principles in the sense that babies are born with a knowledge of everything which men know, and which cannot be deduced from what is experienced. For this reason, the word innate would not now be employed to describe our knowledge of logical principles. The phrase a priori is less objectionable, and is more usual in modern writers. Thus, while admitting that all knowledge is elicited and caused by experience, we shall nevertheless hold that some knowledge is a priori, in the sense that the experience which makes us think of it does not suffice to prove it, but merely so directs our attention that we see its truth without requiring any proof from experience. There is another point of great importance, in which the empiricists were in the right as against the rationalists. Nothing can be known to exist except by the help of experience. That is to say, if we wish to prove that something of which we have no direct experience exists, we must have among our premises the existence of one or more things of which we have direct experience. Our belief that the emperor of China exists, for example, rests upon testimony, and testimony consists in the last analysis of sense data seen or heard in reading or being spoken to. Rationalists believe that, from general consideration as to what must be, they could deduce the existence of this or that in the actual world. In this belief, they seem to have been mistaken. All the knowledge that we can acquire a priori concerning existence seems to be hypothetical. It tells us that if one thing exists, another must exist, or more generally, that if one proposition is true, another must be true. This is exemplified by the principles we have already dealt with, such as, if this is true and this implies that, then that is true, or, if this and that have been repeatedly found connected, they will probably be connected in the next instance in which one of them is found. Thus the scope and power of a priori principles is strictly limited. All knowledge that something exists must be in part dependent on experience. When anything is known immediately, its existence is known by experience alone. When anything is proved to exist, without being known immediately, both experience and a priori principles must be required in the proof. Knowledge is called empirical when it rests wholly or partly upon experience. Thus all knowledge which asserts existence is empirical, and the only a priori knowledge concerning existence is hypothetical, giving connections among things that exist or may exist, but not giving actual existence. A priori knowledge is not all of the logical kind we have been hitherto considering. Perhaps the most important example of non-logical a priori knowledge is knowledge as to ethical value. I am not speaking of judgments as to what is useful or what is virtuous, for such judgments do require empirical premises. I am speaking of judgments as to the intrinsic desirability of things. If something is useful, it must be useful because it secures some end. The end must, if we have gone far enough, be valuable on its own account, and not merely because it is useful for some further end. Thus all judgments as to what is useful depend upon judgments as to what has value on its own account. We judge, for example, that happiness is more desirable than misery, knowledge than ignorance, goodwill than hatred, and so on. Such judgments must, in part at least, be immediate and a priori. Like our previous a priori judgments, they may be elicited by experience, and indeed they must be, for it seems not possible to judge whether anything is intrinsically valuable unless we have experienced something of the same kind. 
but it is fairly obvious that they cannot be proved by experience. For the fact that a thing exists, or does not exist, cannot prove either that it is good that it should exist, or that it is bad. The pursuit of this subject belongs to ethics, where the impossibility of deducing what ought to be from what is has to be established. In the present connection, it is only important to realize that knowledge as to what intrinsically is of value a priori in the same sense in which logic is a priori, namely in the sense that the truth of such knowledge can be neither proved nor disproved by experience. All pure mathematics is a priori, like logic. This was strenuously denied by the empirical philosophers, who maintained that experience was as much the source of our knowledge of arithmetic as our knowledge of geography. They maintained that by the repeated experience of seeing two things and two other things, and finding that altogether they made four things, we were led by induction to the conclusion that two things and two other things would always make four things altogether. If, however, this were the source of our knowledge that two and two are four, we should proceed differently in persuading ourselves of its truth from the way in which we do actually proceed. In fact, a certain number of instances are needed to make us think of two abstractly, rather than of two coins or two books or two people or two of any other specified kind. But as soon as we are able to divest our thoughts of irrelevant particularity, we become able to see the general principle that two and two are four. Any one instance is seen to be typical, and the examination of other instances becomes unnecessary. The same thing is exemplified in geometry. If we want to prove some property of all triangles, we draw some one triangle and reason about it, but we can avoid making use of any property which it does not share with all other triangles, and thus from our particular case we obtain a general result. We do not, in fact, feel our certainty that two and two are four, increased by fresh instances, because as soon as we have seen the truth of this proposition, our certainty becomes so great as to be incapable of growing greater. Moreover, we feel some quality of necessity about the proposition two and two are four, which is absent from even the best attested empirical generalizations. Such generalizations always remain mere facts. We feel that there might be a world in which they were false, though in the actual world they happen to be true. In any possible world, on the contrary, we feel that two and two would be four. This is not a mere fact, but a necessity to which everything actual and possible must conform. The case may be made clearer by considering a genuinely empirical generalization, such as, all men are mortal. It is plain that we believe this proposition, in the first place, because there is no known instance of men living beyond a certain age, and in the second place, because there seem to be physiological grounds for thinking that an organism such as a man's body must sooner or later wear out. Neglecting the second ground, and considering merely our experience of men's mortality, it is plain that we should not be content with one quite clearly understood instance of a man dying, whereas, in the case of two and two are four, one instance does suffice, when carefully considered, to persuade us that the same must happen in any other instance. Also, we can be forced to admit on reflection that there may be some doubt, however slight, as to whether all men are mortal. This may be made plain by the attempts to imagine two different worlds, in one of which there are men who are not mortal, while in the other, two and two make five. When Swift invites us to consider the race of strollbugs who never die, we are able to acquiesce in imagination, but a world where two and two make five 
seems quite on a different level. We feel that such a world, if there were one, would upset the whole fabric of our knowledge and reduce us to utter doubt. The fact of that, in simple mathematical judgments such as two and two are four, and also in many judgments of logic, we can know the general proposition without inferring it from instances, although some instance is usually necessary to make clear to us what the general proposition means. This is why there's real utility in the process of deduction, which goes from the general to the general, or from the general to the particular, as well as in the process of induction, which goes from the particular to the particular, or from the particular to the general. It is an old debate among philosophers whether deduction ever gives new knowledge. We can now see that in certain cases, at least, it does do so. If we already know that 2 and 2 always make 4, and we know that Brown and Jones are 2, and so are Robinson and Smith, we can deduce that Brown and Jones and Robinson and Smith are 4. This is new knowledge, not contained in our premises, because the general proposition, 2 and 2 are 4, never told us there were such people as Brown and Jones and Robinson and Smith, and the particular premises do not tell us that there were four of them, whereas the particular proposition deduced does tell us both these things. But the newness of the knowledge is much less certain if we take the stock instance of deduction that is always given in books on logic, namely, all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. In this case, what we really know beyond reasonable doubt is that certain men, A, B, C, were mortal, since, in fact, they have died. If Socrates is one of these men, it is foolish to go the roundabout way through all men are mortal to arrive at the conclusion that probably Socrates is mortal. If Socrates is not one of the men on whom our induction is based, we shall still do better to argue straight from our A, B, C to Socrates than to go around by the general proposition all men are mortal. For the probability that Socrates is mortal is greater on our data than the probability that all men are mortal. This is obvious, because if all men are mortal, so is Socrates. But if Socrates is mortal, it does not follow that all men are mortal. Hence, we shall reach the conclusion that Socrates is mortal, with a greater approach to certainty, if we make our argument purely inductive, than if we go by way of all men are mortal, and then use deduction. This illustrates the difference between general propositions known a priori, such as two and two are four, and the empirical generalizations such as all men are mortal. In regard to the former, deduction is the right mode of argument, whereas in regard to the latter, induction is always theoretically preferable, and warrants a greater confidence in the truth of our conclusions, because all empirical generalizations are more certain than the instances of them. We have now seen that there are propositions known a priori, and that among them are the propositions of logic and pure mathematics, as well as the fundamental propositions of ethics. The question which we must next occupy is, how is it possible that there should be such knowledge? And more particularly, how can there be knowledge of general propositions in cases where we have not examined all the instances, and indeed never can examine them all, because their number is infinite? These questions, which were first brought prominently forward by the German philosopher Kant, are very difficult, and historically very important. Immanuel Kant is generally regarded as the greatest of the modern philosophers. Though he lived through the Seven Years' War and the French Revolution, he never interrupted his teaching at philosophy at Königsberg in East Prussia. 
His most distinctive contribution was the invention of what he called the critical philosophy, which, assuming as a datum that there is knowledge of various kinds, inquired how such knowledge come to be possible, and deduced from the answer to this inquiry many metaphysical results as to the nature of the world. Whether these results were valid may well be doubted, but Kant undoubtedly deserves credit for two things. First, for having perceived that we have a priori knowledge which is not purely analytic, i.e. such that the opposite would be self-contradictory, and secondly, for having made evident the philosophical importance of the theory of knowledge. Before the time of Kant, it was generally held that whatever knowledge was a priori must be analytic. What this word means will be best illustrated by examples. If I say a bald man is a man, a plain figure is a figure, a bad poet is a poet, I make a purely analytic judgment. The subject spoken about is given as having at least two properties, of which one is singled out to be asserted of it. Such propositions as the above are trivial and would never be enunciated in real life, except by an orator preparing the way for a piece of sophistry. They are called analytic because the predicate is obtained by merely analyzing the subject. Before the time of Kant, it was thought that all judgments of which we could be certain a priori were of this kind, that in all of them there was a predicate which was only part of the subject of which it was asserted. If this were so, we should be involved in a definite contradiction if we attempted to deny anything that could be known a priori. A bald man is not bald, would assert and deny baldness of the same man, and would therefore contradict itself. Thus, according to the philosophers before Kant, the law of contradiction, which asserts that nothing can at the same time have and not have a certain property, suffice to establish the truth of all a priori knowledge. Hume, who preceded Kant, accepting the usual view as to what makes knowledge a priori, discovered that, in many cases, which had previously been supposed analytic, and notably in the case of cause and effect, the connection was really synthetic. Before Hume, rationalists at least had supposed that the effect could be logically deduced from the cause, if only we had sufficient knowledge. Hume argued, correctly as would now be generally admitted, that this could not be done. Hence he inferred the far more doubtful proposition that nothing could be known a priori about the connection of cause and effect. Kant, who had been educated in the rationalist tradition, was much perturbed by Hume's skepticism, and endeavored to find an answer to it. He perceived that not only the connection of cause and effect, but all the propositions of arithmetic and geometry are synthetic, i.e. not analytic. In all these propositions, no analysis of the subject will reveal the predicate. His stock instance was the proposition 7 plus 5 equals 12. He pointed out, quite truly, that 7 and 5 have to be put together to give 12. The idea of 12 is not contained in them, or even in the idea of adding them together. Thus he was led to the conclusion that all pure mathematics, though a priori, is synthetic, and this conclusion raised a new problem of which he endeavored to find the solution. The question which Kant put at the beginning of his philosophy, namely, how is pure mathematics possible, is an interesting and difficult one, to which every philosophy which is not purely skeptical must find some answer. The answer of the pure empiricist that our mathematical knowledge is derived from induction from particular instances, we have already seen to be inadequate, for two reasons. First, that the validity of the inductive principle itself cannot be proved by induction. Secondly, that the general propositions of mathematics, such as two and two always make four, can obviously be known with certainty by consideration of a single instance, and gain nothing by enumeration of other cases in which they have been found to be true. Thus our knowledge of the general propositions of mathematics 
and the same applies to logic, must be accounted for otherwise than our merely probable knowledge of empirical generalizations such as all men are mortal. The problem arises through the fact that such knowledge is general, whereas all experience is particular. It seems strange that we should apparently be able to know some truths in advance about particular things of which we have as yet no experience, but it cannot easily be doubted that logic and arithmetic will apply to such things. We do not know who will be the inhabitants of London a hundred years hence, but we know that any two of them, and any other two of them, will make four of them. This apparent power of anticipating facts about things of which we have no experience is certainly surprising. Kant's solution of the problem, though not valid in my opinion, is interesting. It is, however, very difficult, and is differently understood by different philosophers. We can, therefore, only give the merest outline of it, and even that will be thought misleading by many exponents of Kant's system. What Kant maintained was that in all our experience there are two elements to be distinguished, the one due the object, i.e. to what we have called the physical object, the other due to our own nature. We saw in discussing matter and sense data that the physical object is different from the associated sense data, and that the sense data are to be regarded as resulting from an interaction between the physical object and ourselves. So far we are in agreement with Kant. But what is distinctive of Kant is the way in which he apportions the shares of ourselves and the physical object respectively. He considers that the crude material given in sensation, the color, hardness, etc., is due to the object, and that what we supply is the arrangement in space and time, and all the relations between sense data which result from comparison or from considering one of the cause of the other or in any other way. His chief reason in favor of this view is that we seem to have a priori knowledge as to space and time and causality in comparison, but not as to the actual crude material of sensation. We can be sure, he says, that anything we shall ever experience must show the characteristics affirmed of it in our a priori knowledge, because these characteristics are due to our own nature, and therefore nothing can ever come into our experience without acquiring these characteristics. And I'm going to leave it there for now. I wish everyone a good night.